0: Hello, welcome to The Theology Podcast. It's great to have you with us. And we are in Everett, Washington, at the Thane Boatworks. So we're actually in a big warehouse. It's fabulous. I love all of the large timber. And uh, we've got a lot of boats around us that are being worked on. And we have a, a, a live studio audience. Studio audience, let the folks know that you're here, all right. Well, uh, we really appreciate the folks who have invited us to be here tonight. Uh, We really appreciate Trinitas, uh, the church that's sponsoring the event, and the people involved with the church who have uh, made this all possible. We we feel very grateful. And uh, we're going to just kind of do our normal thing. I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor. I'm actually serving in Washington now. And uh, so I was in Connecticut, but now I live in Battleground, Washington, And I serve a church in Vancouver, the Westminster Presbyterian Church. And uh, anyway, I've written some books and I've got a book on Tom Bombadil that's uh, coming out real soon. And uh, things are kind of developing nicely with that. But anyway, that's enough about me. Glenn, why don't you tell us about yourself?
1: I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a professor emeritus of history from Central Connecticut State University. Ministry associate for Reflections Ministries, a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, and probably a few things I'm
2: forgetting
0: you're married to Lynn. And there's
2: Lynn. <laughs> Lynn's right here. All right, Tom. i Tom Price, and I'm married to Sandra. Yeah, That's there she is. That's probably the well. most significant thing about me. Yeah. Um, I'm a systematic theologian, Christian ethicist, and I teach philosophy as well at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, University of St. Joseph, and a few other places. And... Uh, yeah, that's enough for now. Yeah,
0: that's right. <laughs> By the way, raise your hand, Sandra. Sandra is the person who you will talk to if you're interested in our merchandise. If you want one of our marvelous glasses or one of the fabulous podcast T-shirts that frighten people, you, yeah, <laughs> you want to talk to Sandra about that. Anyway, uh, the subject that we're going to be addressing tonight is the subject of culture. We, we want to actually address the, the subject of culture and think uh, kind of out loud about how the Christian faith and culture uh, uh, interrelate, are juxtaposed, uh, how they influence each other, that sort of stuff. So um, this is something that, of course, Niebuhr wrote about, you know, Christ and culture. And so there were different models that he outlined. You remember in Christ and culture, ways that the that church, you know, sort of the, the Christian faith and culture can relate to each other. But I don't wanna kinda go there right away. I just like to think a little bit about what are we talking about? When we talk about culture, what are, we, what are we referring to? Like when I was a kid, when people talked about culture, what they meant was high culture. They meant the symphony. They meant the art museum. They meant, you meant things like that. They didn't mean just anything. Yeah. You know, anything didn't. You know, that, didn't count, that didn't count as culture. But then the anthropologist had their say. Yeah. And the anthropologist told us that culture is something that constitutes sort of the, kind of the air we breathe, you know, it's sort of like the social milieu that we find ourselves in, and there's just kind of culture everywhere. I mean, you've got, you know, you may talk about high culture, uh, but, but that doesn't mean that no one else has culture, you've got culture here, culture, you've got cultures that are, you know, uh, you know, the cultures that we associate with different, uh, nations and, uh, civilizations and so forth. So, uh, what do, we, what do we mean, though, when we talk about culture? Because if, if we don't define our terms, then we're likely to disagree with each other about things we don't even know we're disagreeing with each other about or talking about things and trying to talk it past each other. So, Glenn, I know you've done a lot of work on this, so particularly culture and worldview. Okay,
1: well, first of all, as a definition of culture, you can look at it as the body of practices, uh, artifacts, uh, ideas, uh, uh, arts, things like that, that a society produces, okay? And I would argue that, uh, you know, one of the questions that was uh, proposed when we were coming here is the relationship of worldview and culture. I would argue that culture is the outworking of the dominant worldview in a society, that as that worldview takes root and begins to uh, work its way through the culture over time, the culture will embody all of the ideas that, all of the implications of the basic ideas that are in that worldview. So it doesn't happen instantly. When the worldview shifts, it doesn't automatically change everything. But over time, the implications of the worldview will work their way through the culture and it will you know, essentially embody uh, that dominant worldview, assuming it stays dominant long enough.
0: Now, what what do we do with, like, subcultures? Like, I'm wearing a hat. Waffle House, baby. Waffle House. Now, Waffle House represents a particular, I think, subculture, right? And when we think about culture in the sense that you just described, I, I think of the elites, you know, the people who were kind of in charge, who run the media, large corporations, big universities. How do these things relate to each other?
1: Well, I I would say quite simply that it applies at all different levels of society. You know, so you have a um, a culture in the inner city that is radically different from the culture at Harvard, but they're both cultures, and they're both outworkings of basic ideas that are embedded in the culture. The the worldviews of culture. So we have
0: this larger tableau, which is the culture at large, and then subcultures are particular Mm -hmm. expressions of it. Is that what you're saying?
1: Yeah. Or. When we're looking at sort of the macro picture, let's say American culture, if there was such a thing, um, what is the way that the majority of people in society view reality, which is another way of talking about worldview? That's going to end up shaping the overall culture of the country, however... There would be enclaves, there'll be different groups within the society that may not agree with that, and if they come together, they may create a
0: subculture. Okay, so then that subculture could actually be kind of diametrically opposed? Yep. Okay, so you were going to say something, Tom?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think we're definitely working with a certain understanding of a culture. The only problem, as you mentioned a little earlier, that's probably not shared by most people who are promoting something like culture and what they mean by it. Um, For example, I think what is dominating the discourse in Western society tends to be defined by the social sciences in particular, and it tends to be more about social consciousness, Um, the kind of uh, experience of a particular kind of uh, group experience or social experience, and that that is determined by a host of things, whether it's a particular location, language, set of um, oppressive experiences or power experiences and things like that. Whereas I would go to, to, to move towards a proper theological definition in the direction that Glenn is talking, um, I think it would go above a lot of people's heads if, we, if, if we're, we don't make that clarification. For example, what is multiculturalism? Right, right. It, it, it's sort of an expression <clears throat> that there can be, even within a particular so-called culture, a whole host of different social, forms of social consciousness and experience that can't really be harmonized very easily. Yeah, yeah. And, and so because of this, because it's on the level of consciousness, even mm-hmm. though there are practices and beliefs that are enacted, um, that tends to become what is, is most significant about it right. and, and the experience tied to it. And so, for example, you could, for today's understanding, it could be problematic, for example, that someone like Mendelssohn could be, for example, Jewish by race, but German by culture. Because for them, that no matter what, Mendelssohn somehow, because he's Jewish by race, would have a set of experience that would not fully be the same within the German culture, and therefore there would be a consciousness difference. And so they would start making divisions of that kind of sort um, that that really come down to experience and social consciousness of a a group, small or large, and that would be kind of where the emphasis would be put. Yeah, and the the problem there is
1: what do you do with Mendelssohn, who is fully part of German culture?
2: Yeah, right. And
1: I think the answer is you import ideas um, from Marxism, which is where many of these people are influenced anyway, and talk about them having a false consciousness,
0: well, I think that gets us into the, the subject that I, I was hoping we kind of move this toward. Uh, why do we want to let the anthropologists and the uh, folks that we're uh, you know referring to here, you know, uh, political activists, define culture for us? Isn't there a theological approach? Remember John Milbank and yeah. you know social theory, you know, his book. Well, it, what he what he's trying to address there is that every social theory is a kind of theology yeah. in disguise. So Marxism is a kind of theology in disguise. It's, yes. it's a, actually a, a heresy, yeah. a Christian heresy. Yeah. And um, we could get into that a little bit. But if we were gonna approach this theologically uh, and try to understand what is culture, mm-hmm. theologically understood, what, what would we do differently?
2: Um, and this will move right into what, where Glenn goes mm-hmm. with it. Um, as a Christian... When we think about culture, um, there are affinities we may have with other interpretations, but the driving center of a Christian conception of culture is a Christian conception of culture, into worldview. And what is it that? What is the principle? The first principle of Christian theology. Any takers? <laughs> your your church is is named after it. The doctrine of the Trinity. And at the core of the Christian understanding of God, God's eternal inner life is a fundamental relation. Now, that relationship is utterly unique. It's not the same as human relationships. Nevertheless, it grounds human sociality. And so right at the start... um, the distinct understanding of God and the distinct understanding of human creatures as social beings in relation, and that that's central to our relation to God, each other, and the flourishing of the whole of creation, becomes the fundamental root and ground of any significant conception of a culture. Um, Why does, for example, a secularist who promotes almost a absolute vision of everyone's particular culture and its cultural experience put so much value on it when it's when it's rootless right and so christians a christian conception of culture isn't rootless now let's spread it out a little bit the doctrine of creation is such that creation speaks look at romans the book of romans for example that the, the visible things manifest the invisible realities of God. They speak, they don't merely speak of themselves, they speak of that to which they owe all of what they are. And it's that fundamental relation that pushes human desire and creation towards its perfection, and that's where culture comes from. Now, what else does it say? Creation is also fallen, right? We didn't appreciate the creator, worship properly, which is at the core of any proper um, culture. So, what do we do? We suppress it, and then what happens? Our loves get ill-formed or malformed. We fall, depravity, and and we become idolaters. Well, that becomes central now to fall in humanity's social consciousness, experience, practices, and beliefs. But there is still an echo in the whole of creation, as fallen as it is, and everything else, to where Paul can go into. Um, speaking in the book of Acts, can go into a crowd of pagans and say, look, your poets are not far from this. In him, we live and move and have our being. And then there is a way in which we can fill that in with with the substance of divine revelation as we've been given it in Christ. Um, So my whole point here is is that we have a theological ground for the social and the cultural, its significance, we also recognize that in, in the whole of the world it is fallen, and yet there are some echoes there where some truth gets through as distorted as it is, but when when brought into renewal in Christ can actually find its fulfillment too. And so this becomes, I think, the groundwork for a Christian understanding of culture, its significance how we can relate to other things, but also be critical of their idols and their malformed social relations and love.
0: Yeah. Well, let's, t- let's, t- let's take a look at the word culture then because I think that what you've just described, I think, takes us right there. The, uh, you know, the root uh, or the, you know, if you look at the stem, it's cult. Yeah. Right? Cult. What, what do we associate w- or what is cult refer to? It refers to worship. It refers to... Uh, the sort of the the, the practices of a, of a of a people as they they endeavor to uh, live in light of their understanding of the divine. You know, if we're talking about say an animistic culture where they believe that spirits inhabit you know everything you know that surrounds them, that that's going to have a different you know one kind of expression. But then you know. Uh, the, the the word also is uh, you know we see it developed in the word cultivate mm-hmm. you know a culture is a kind of cultivation and uh, there's been some I think some interesting work uh, in the uh, in anthropology not uh, I mean in, in uh, archaeology uh, which has identified sort of the the, the growth of um, sort of religious practices alongside agriculture. So for example, we've got some beer tonight. <laughs> it's been uh proposed that uh beer comes uh from the need to to produce uh you know enough alcohol <laughs> in order to uh uh you know sort of I guess uh, help the spirits in a number of respects, <laughs> uh, inhabit the worship of, the, of a particular people. There's off, there are offerings that are made. But, but uh, what, what we have, uh, our archaeologists are discovering that some of the oldest temples that they have been able to excavate were surrounded by large agricultural works, so fields for grain and so forth. So there's something about cultivation, worship, Uh, These things go together, but then when we think about cultivation, I think that our minds uh, should also go to the work that cultures do in terms of the development or the cultivation of people, you know, so when we think about, you know, American culture, there are certain things about our culture that uh, help to uh, develop a particular outlook, a way of life, uh, kind of things that we measure, uh, you know, the success of the various members of our society by, all these different things seem to go together. So uh, one of the ways that some theologians have approached the subject is, is they'll say, okay, every, every culture has a worshiping center, right? And that the ethics and the values of that, of that culture are the outworking of its worshiping center. And then the question is, is what's the center? What's the worshiping center? That's a one way to kind of proceed with this and analyze, yep. you know, the health, using the, the categories that you've talked about, Tom. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you're, you're right in kind of line with this, but I'm kind of yep. approaching it from a slightly different angle.
2: Yeah, and I think it's, couple, it's, it's right along the line of what Glenn's saying with worldview. I mean, whether you use it as, the, you know, theological vision, as I tend to emphasize that term, worldview is what he's using there, the way in which your fundamental beliefs about what is ultimate determine the rest of the story. I'll let you run with it.
1: <laughs> yeah, um, when you, When when you're talking about worldview, there are a lot of different ways of analyzing it. Everybody's got a a different approach. But fundamentally, there are... I would say that your worldview is what you think of as common sense about the world. And one of the key parts of that is what are the things that are ultimately real. And how you answer that question really shapes pretty much everything else. Let me give you an example. Um, If you are a Hindu... Now, this is, all, all these are overgeneralizations, but you'll get the point anyway. If you're a Hindu, the physical universe is a dream in the mind of God. If you are a Buddhist, the physical universe is an illusion. If you are a, some Native American tribes, the physical world is sort of real, but the world of dreams is more real. If you are a Muslim, the physical universe is real, but in classical Islam, everything that happens in the world is a result of the direct action of Allah in the world. There are no secondary causes. Allah causes everything. If, in all of these cases, ask yourself the question, does it make sense to do science? If you are a Hindu, are you going to do your best to understand the way the dream in God's mind is working, if it is working at all in a rational way. If you're a Buddhist, are you going to try to understand the illusion or are you going to try to meditate your way past it? If you're a Native American, are you going to focus on this world or on your dreams? If you're a Muslim, there are no secondary causes as a matter of fact, in classical Islam, there were people who argued that the idea of natural law was apostasy, because if there is natural law, it limited Allah's freedom.
0: Yeah, there's a great book on that subject called The Closing of the Muslim Mind. Right. Which addresses that, yeah.
1: Yeah. So, so why, ask yourself the question, why science develops in the West? Well, in Christianity, you have a concept of God that says that God is the source of all things but God is also a God of reason. He's rational. Under those circumstances, you can expect the universe to be understandable. It should follow rules. Human beings made in the image of God are also therefore rational, and they should be able to look at the universe and see the rules that God put in place to govern it. Add to that the next step, that studying the universe reveals the mind of God, and therefore it is ultimately a theological exercise. Under these circumstances, and by the way, everything that I just said was articulated by people during the scientific revolution. Pretty much all of them said something to that effect. Johannes Kepler, the guy who figured out planetary motion, described what he was doing as thinking God's thoughts after him. So when you take a look at this, the the initial assumptions that you make about the nature of God the nature of humanity, the relationship of these things, what is, what is ultimate reality, all of that has a massive effect on shaping culture. It's no accident. Frankly, modern science could not develop anywhere except one that had a Christian worldview.
0: This brings us to something I think it would be worth thinking a little bit about because Tom kind of introduced the subject a little bit with multiculturalism. Uh, we live in a world today where a kind of neutrality is promoted that um, discourages us from evaluating and judging cultures. Yep. so what you what you just did a, a moment ago, Glenn, uh, was absolutely correct historically speaking, but a real faux pas <laughs> in polite society. <laughs> what, what you've what you implied is that we owe science to the West now. It's just simply an historic fact that science developed in the West and it's spread around the world. And today, people who aren't even Christians are, 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 are good scientists. But, and and well, you've implied that science is a good thing. Well, that, <laughs> and that, and that's another thing. So how do we, how do we yeah. evaluate? What's the basis for judging? Or can we judge? I would say we, we can and should as a Christian, but I'd like to think a little bit about how we go about it. Well, when I'm dealing with this
1: question with my secular students, uh, I tell him a story from um, I was doing prison ministry at one point when I was an undergrad. And uh, I was going into a federal prison with some people in, in Oklahoma. Uh, I was there for a summer program. And um, there was a guy I got to know there was a guitarist. I, I did a little bit with guitar at that point in my life. So I I spent a lot of time talking to him. And at lunch, they asked me if I knew what he was in for. And I said, no. And they said, well... He's a murderer and a drug dealer. Now, he seemed like just sort of a normal, nice guy to me. I mean, this didn't strike me as, you know, okay. Um, But then they they told me another part of his story. They said, you know, he, he was from a sort of Native American Hispanic background. Uh, And whether it was because of the worldview coming in from Native American cultures or his prior drug use, he decided one day that he was immune to the white men's bullets and decided to walk out of the prison. The guards violated their orders and did not shoot to kill. They shot his legs out from under him, and he spent months and months and months in the hospital getting his legs put back together to the point where he could walk again. Now, here's your question. Whose worldview corresponds more closely to reality? His worldview when he tried to walk out of the prison? Or the prison guards who knew that they would kill him when they shot him if they aimed in that area? Somebody's worldview worked better than somebody else's. You know, and ultimately that I think is is the question you know we've we've got all kinds of arguments about what is the nature you know how do you determine what's true when you're dealing with worldviews that which conforms to the way things really work that's probably a pretty good
0: guide so uh what you what you've presented with us is sort of a i guess um the proof is in the pudding kind of thing in other words it's you you see it in how it plays itself out uh but you know how this can work you know Dogged cultural relativists will find that argument unconvincing, or at least they won't admit <laughs> that you've you've made your point. But, you know, it, it 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 kind of works like this. You know, it's, it's sort of like you know when you're in, when you're when you're in, introducing people to Rene Descartes, and he's he's talking about you know, the standard of, the, of something that's indubitable, you know, you can, something you cannot doubt. And he, he raises the thought, th- you know, the, the proposition that perhaps all of my sense experience is just, you know, stuff that I'm dreaming. Yeah. It's just happening in my head. And uh, say we come back to the Hindu, and he says this is all happening in, in God's head, so to speak, um, you know, you've not necessarily made your case that there is a physical reality outside that uh, actually took that guy down. Even though he's screaming (laughs) and bleeding and that kind of stuff, uh, nevertheless, uh, it's all still happening in God's mind. What do you say to something like that? I'm I'm not trying to be facetious here. I'm just, this is the kind of stuff we deal with sometimes with with really hard-headed, people who reject objective reality. And, and I think, well, just before you go into it, just complicate
2: it a little more because I think this is stuff you tend to see in universities a lot. Um, there, there tends to be, especially as, as postmodernity hits, and post-modernity is something I think we're all confronting. If I mention the term post-modernity, how many people here would know something of what? Okay, good. So we don't have to we have to run through that wheel a bit. Um, because one of the things you start to see is th- this notion that, for example, a Christian, like what just Glenn or I presented when we talked about a Christian vision or worldview, they see that as a meta-narrative, as something that is a, 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 a dominant interpretation of something that tries to basically absorb every every other kind of interpretation of the world and bring it under its control. And, and therefore, it marginalizes um, certain kinds of things and, and promotes certain kinds of things. Um, and then even when you talk about practical application, um, for them, it, for, for a lot of the, the people who really do truly hold to these kind of beliefs, for them, the practical side of it, it, it's, it it's for them psychologically, it's, it's much more sane in their view who live in a world in which they're not triggered by an oppressive meta-narrative than it is to bump up against bad bad steps into reality. So, so the kind of, the test case, now there is an obvious test case. That you If you don't believe um, that left or right or straight or backwards refer to anything in reality and then you walk straight into a traffic, of course, something's going to be pro- problematic. I don't think most people in their everyday experience... Um, live as though the world's that relative or it's open for interpretation. This is where I think Glenn, the door open into what Glenn's talking about here. But where it's difficult for a lot of us as, as Christians is they align Christianity with, because it is an all-encompassing interpretation, Christ's lordship does mean to bring all things into submission to him. Um, so we are going to, to be charged with that sort of thing. Um, and Secondly, a lot of times Christianity has been aligned with Enlightenment visions, which I would say are a cheap substitute of Christian metanarrative, and they have they import a lot of the things that can be oppressive and can be the kind of thing that try to include some things, leave other things out. For example, experience or mythology or different things like that will be looked at in some versions of the Enlightenment rationality as with a question mark or they, you know, it wouldn't fit into that kind of interpretation of the world. So that's just thickening kind of the place yeah. that we well, have well, we, we, I, we Go ahead, go ahead.
1: Go. I, would, I would just like to sort of simplify this. I would ask them, why did you get vaccinated? Yeah, yeah, that's the why kind of... Why are you wearing a mask? Right. Or if you want to go in a bit of a different direction, tell them their fly is down. They will always look. <laughs> <laughs> a,
0: well, yeah, and I think that, that, that that's, that's kind of a good sort of... Uh, Corrective. I think, you know, getting to some of the things that Tom is referring to, we've been in, you know, academic environments for the last, you know, 20 to 30 years of our lives. And we all know that this kind of uh, game that people play with the meta narrative and oppression uh, is, in some sense, disingenuous because there is a new meta narrative that's been sort of introduced that uh, is hidden. So, you know, for example, when I lived in Cambridge, I lived right between Harvard and MIT, and I lived in this place that was uh, ostensibly, you know, one of the most uh, diverse places in the world. But I noticed that everybody was very much the same in certain respects. There was a certain ideology that they all shared. Mm -hmm. There was a certain kind of uh, set of tastes that they all possessed. And uh, there was, you know, kind of a fashion consciousness uh, particularly amongst the younger people, that was remarkably similar, regardless of what your skin color was or what your accent was. <laughs> In other words, there was a kind of a there. There had this, this sort of environment, this multicultural environment, was its own kind of meta narrative, its yeah. own kind of culture, and it was it wasn't owning itse- itself as such. It was it was really kind of a sneaky way of, of manipulating people and getting them to go along with certain things. And you know, it, it would be things like you just mentioned, Glenn, that would be kind of the reality checks. I remember one time I lived in, as I noted, in, in this, uh, local, this part of Cambridge, and, the, and we had people in our, our, our apartment building who were really from all over the world. And uh, one uh, night, about three in the morning, our, our uh, kitchen ceiling just collapsed. <laughs> And the reason it classed is because the people upstairs uh, had never experienced indoor plumbing and they had left the faucets on <laughs> and had let the, the, the sink fill up with water and it just literally overflowed And it just saturated the the floor, and then our ceiling, and then it all came crashing down. There was a certain place where even the civil authorities in the city of Cambridge said, "This is too multicultural. (laughs) This this, is this is not uh, the kind of multicultural. What we want is multiculturalism as expressed in sort of like interesting food, (laughs) Uh, you know, different clothes, you know, Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff." But multiculturalism at this sort of practical level is just not workable. And no one's going to uh, take it seriously. No one's gonna let that real sort of way of life uh, take root in Cambridge. We're not actually gonna let people build mud huts in the middle of town.
2: Not in Cambridge, but I'm starting to see yeah, I mean, maybe it in, in Portland. Portland. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, maybe in Things have come a long way since I live in Cambridge. But you get what I'm getting at. Yeah.
1: Well, and also, I would argue that the current meta narrative that is being promoted by these people who ostensibly believe in cultural relativity and multiculturalism is critical theory.
0: Yes, that's right.
1: You know, that is functioning as the new meta narrative.
0: And as I noted before, it's a kind of heresy. It's a Christian heresy. Right. We can trace its roots to the Christian faith.
2: Yeah, and and one, I mean. let's Let's go back maybe a little bit to the fact that Christianity bursts on the scene into a world of a whole host, of variety of cultures. And it comes out of a particular culture, a culture um, that is brought into a sanctifying relationship with the, the uh, God of Scripture, right? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that little Trinitarian hint going on there early on. And one of the things that you note is, first and foremost, though, though uh, Israel... Um, The people of God are called to be a particular kind of people to live out in relationship to being brought into a distinct kind of relation with the creator of the universe to be distinct, separate. Nevertheless, they bumped up against a whole variety of cultures and their relationship to those other cultures was complicated sometimes. Sometimes it was easy to get tempted and move into those places and adopt their gods, syncretize. Um, Other times, a whole host of complications arose that way. Um, Other times, though, they were able to incorporate some of those things and almost almost bring them in more innocently. Um, And even outsiders, you you know, get into Melchizedek and and all these these sorts of things. Um, And so... The relationship is not so easy all the time, even though there is, there is, on the one hand, this call to be a distinct people, ordered and fashioned one way. There is a kind of God openness to the desire of the nations and other cultures when related to the right way, right? And so, then you see in Christianity, this really floods on the scene. I mean, what is the first thing you notice about your, your, your New Testament originally? written in Greek, right? So here we are having a distinct people starting to live within the confines of a different culture. And there's a lot of assimilation. Hellenic culture is impacting Hebraic culture.
0: Yeah, very intentionally so.
2: And, And then what you have is a mission to go into every nation, people of every tribe and everything else because now the announcement is Jesus Christ is Lord for you too.
0: I've heard this described as the Empire Strikes Back. So, <laughs> <laughs> what, you, what you have is, is that you've got the, you know, this uh, this uh, colonizing uh, and expansive culture, obviously with Hellenism and Alexander the Great, and then later with, you know, Latin, you know, uh, you know Roman culture, and uh, and then as after you know this you know empire is established, this, this, there's this kind of a back uh, backflow. Of of influence. It's not just simply moving in one direction, it's but moving in two directions. And so The Empire Strikes Back is that kind of, we see it it with, you know, the British Empire. You know, you go to London today, and it's hard to find people who, you know, whose ancestors are actually from that part of the world. (laughs) They're from all over the rest of the world, right? They've they've come and they've they've taken up residence in London. It's a marvelous thing. You know, I'm not I'm not against it at all, but it's just this, this idea that it, things move in one direction is just not true. Things move in more than one direction at any
2: time. That's, that's, that's right, and what you have there is something fascinating, the way in which a, a band of people carrying a message of the Lordship of Christ, who are pretty much powerless in terms of this world's high culture and power, are able eventually to turn the world upside down Um, and change the world in ways that we're just beginning to see what happens when you start to move away from that. But prior to this, there's a couple things I don't want to lose. One is the distinct message of Christians is that the eternal logos, the very fabric of meaning and definition and purpose of everything, became flesh and dwelt with us, and we beheld
0: his glory. So let's stop here and just reflect on it a minute. So your, your initial statement about the eternal logos, right? So, that would imply, or that does, I think, not merely imply, but it, it, it you know, sort of establishes that every human culture, every human community, in some sense, is dependent upon its creator and its very sort of s- systems of meaning, in some sense, yes. are connected to the Lagos. Because it says, what's the next thing
2: it says? Through the, well, in John's gospel, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, Right. Um, the word, through the word, all things were made. All things. There was not anything made that has not been made by him. In him was life, but he is the light that lights every man. Now, of course, there is there is the next phase. He comes into his own, his own don't receive him. That's that's the fall part. But lights every man, the desire of the nations, the light of the
0: world. So let's reflect a little bit upon a couple of those things. Uh, uh, desire of the nations, I've heard you use that term obviously it's scriptural. What does that imply? It, it implies similar, I, my, the way I would look at it is it's very similar
2: to the creation groaning. That, that there, there, is, there is no nation that has been abandoned by God. And that the gospel is to go into all of these nations and proclaim Christ's lordship and bring into relation to him all that all that is his and his purposes. I I think it goes a little further Um, when you're looking at it from a human level.
1: um, The word nation there is a little bit tricky. It doesn't mean exactly the same thing that we mean with nation. Um, It can, but it also means things like people groups and and tribes and things like that. But I think that what what it's pointing to is that all of these nations, however you define it, at their highest and at their best ideals what they're looking for is found in Christ. So he is the desire of the nations in the sense that the greatest aspirations, the greatest hopes, the greatest ideals of those nations find their fulfillment in him. Uh, this is the kind of thing that Tolkien and Lewis talked about when they, uh, when they said that, you know, the, the myths of the corn king, the dying and rising gods, all of these kinds of things of mythologies were hints or echoes of, the true myth of Jesus Christ. Uh, It's not so much that the way, you know, the the Jesus myth people say, you know, he's just a copy of all these pagan gods. It's actually the other way around. These were anticipations based on common grace that these cultures had that that something like this must happen.
0: Yeah, I'd like to reflect a little bit on our uh, peculiar situation in the West today. So, what we're referring to here is pagan cultures and how those pagan cultures, in other words, pre-Christian cultures, uh, in some sense anticipate or have elements uh, in those cultures or aspects to those cultures that uh, in some sense reflect God's work and uh, what C.S. Lewis referred to as good dreams, right? And so, the the evangelist, the missionary, whomever can come into the culture and see uh, that he's not working from zero, or she's working from zero, but there's something already going on. Now, our situation in the West is different. Yeah. So we're in a situation now where I would say we're in an anti-culture and a culture of death. And what I mean by that is we've rejected the source of life. So we find ourselves in a post-Christian environment, which is very self-consciously rejected Christ and rejected the Christian faith and what it means. And what that's left is this huge cavity. Now, a lot of, uh, you know, modern philosophy was very forthright about the challenge of that. You know, Nietzsche, when we think about Nietzsche and in, in his, uh, you know, uh, his statement that God is dead, you know, and thus spoke Zarathustra. it's not necessarily uh, gleeful. It's, it's more or less, uh, we are in deep trouble here because we have this black hole in the center of our Western imagination now, and the only thing that could fill it in is God, and that's what we don't want, or we don't think we can, we can believe in anymore. Now, I don't think that he made, I don't think any of those philosophers made a case that I think was sound, but a lot of our culture despisers of religion, you know, in places where we've hung out, Just simply are not open to entertaining the possibility at an intellectual level that that the Christian faith is true. So now we find ourselves in a in a culture that's an anti-culture. What does that mean? Well, it means that it doesn't cultivate. It doesn't it doesn't enrich. It doesn't uh, produce the kind of fruit. In fact, fruitfulness is something that is becoming harder and harder for people to justify. I mean, I you know I I just you know we've got this anti-natal culture now where young women are in their, you know, 20s getting sterilized because they can't bear the thought of bringing a human being into the world. Now, this is something that, you know, uh, intellectuals and culture and sort of, you know, people like Bertrand Russell, you know, we, we associate that kind of ennui, you know, with that with those people. Now it's like democratized. It's like the person in the cubicle next to you at work yeah. <laughs> can't figure out why to live, why why he or she should live. They, they, so they try to substitute things like ecology or the latest yeah. you know social justice cause to fill the void, but those things don't fill the void. Yeah, Philip Rees, uh,
1: a sociologist, talk, uses two terms that are very closely related. One of them is death works, mm-hmm. which refers to simply tearing down things, just destroying things, without really thinking about improving them, replacing them, or anything else. Just just simply ripping things apart. Um, the other term is an anti-culture, which, which Chris just used. Uh, and for Wreath, an anti-culture is, in a lot of ways, the product of death works. Um, you know, the death works are just about destroying things, uh, destroying the family, destroying whatever. And in an anti-culture, you don't replace them with anything. I mean, there, there is no vision of what the world ought to look like. You know, there, there are no solutions. There are only problems. And the problems are meant to be destroyed. But they don't really offer anything as here is the better alternative. And I think that is very much a description of a lot of what we're seeing right now.
2: And I think that gets coupled also with a kind of crass popular culture that that is, um, it's, it's sort of what I mean. The old, the old Marxists would have looked at is is kind of a, a drink you have to kind of keep you preoccupied to realize that what you hold to is thin. It, it has no substance. I'm, I'm talking about the way in which um, popular trends start to dominate the church. Right. Um, the way in which um, there is this this sense that you're a part of something meaningful, but but you scratch it really hard and you
0: realize, you know, there's nothing, nothing at all there. Well, that, that, that yeah. I, you're going right in the direction I yeah. was thinking about here, Tom. You know, if, if we live in an anti-culture, a culture of death, a culture of, with, uh, you know, in which death works are celebrated, um, and we try to contextualize ourselves to that culture of death, in other words, uh, reworking uh, our language, and our uh, our Christian culture, right? Our real? Christian culture to somehow in, in a sort of express that, maybe kind of like you know, you know, like you, you see the Christian T-shirts that take like popular themes in culture, like Gold's Gym, and now it's God's Gym, and all that yeah, kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah. You know, so we end up with that Not kind a of three-headed Cerberus. But we, we you end up with that kind of kitsch, you know, that kind of really uh, sort of uh, shallow, uh, superficial, sentimental art or uh, whatever. Uh, or you end up actually incorporating the very things that need to be, uh, you know, sort of uh, cast out into your own sort of cultural life. So I I had a friend back uh, uh, years ago, his name was uh, Ray Hammond, and he was a brilliant guy. He went to Harvard when he was 16 years old. He grew up in inner city Philadelphia, he was a black guy, and I think he had his, his degree from Harvard by the time he was 20 he had his medical degree from Harvard by the time he was like 24, and uh, so he had, he had begun practicing medicine and decided that God had called him into the ministry, <laughs> and so he went back and got his <laughs> got his, his MDiv, and and so we're talking about a really super sharp guy, and I was talking to him one time about this. I was, you know, we were talking about uh, black American inner city culture, and I said, "What are you doing to contextualize your ministry to that?" And he looked at me and said you don't contextualize to death. Hmm. What they need is life, yeah. <laughs> not a mockery or a sort of, uh, you know, sort of Christianity dressed up to look like, you know, hip-hop culture or something like that.
2: And I think one of the things, I mean, I know, I know looking at it from, from theology and the challenges that theology has had as it entered into the modern world and postmodern world in particular, I think one of the the biggest um, challenges that we have is the way in which we have domesticated the um, transcendence and the way in which we have domesticated the gospel and the message. What do I mean by that? We make it so familiar that everything that is significant about it, resurrection, incarnation, trinity, but what we've ended up doing is domesticating things, making them so familiar that that which is of significance is what is is either made so that it's inoffensive and it you know what what is popularizing the faith do but make it inoffensive and lose the very thing that is at the heart of it that that it is there is something most fundamentally unlike us about all of this because it's that in which we find our fulfillment it's not within us or the world or in popular culture or trends or anything else. It's something completely outside of it in, in, in the sense of what is that, that should be attracting us to it. I mean, think of it this way. If Christ is lifted up, he will draw all men unto himself. Now, what can you do to popularize that?
0: Without trivializing.
2: (laughs) That's right. 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 That's right. I mean, I mean, the very heart of it is a scandal that this cuts across all human means and methods of what would work, right? Right. I mean, let's come at it from a different angle. I mean, let's go to what is at the heart of the reality vision of Christianity that distinguishes it from everything else. It's that you have at the core of reality, the Trinity, something, uh, the, the ultimate reality of all things is at perfect bliss at all times and peaceable, what does that mean? It means that God is not in conflict with the rest of creation like other gods are, right? The, 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 read the other stories. Creations in conflict. Um Hegel, you have thesis and antithesis. The only thing God's in contact in conflict with is sin. Right? And so so one of the things that we have going on here is that the way in which Christ crucified and resurrected is proclaimed in its, it, it, the way scripture puts it, it's a scandal to the world because the world wants to use its power, its methods and means. And what you have is a dead man on a tree becoming the very vehicle through which we have eternal life. <laughs> and so what you, if you package that any more cheaply, you distort the very thing, the very riches that we have that transcend all cultures, condemn all cultures, but also all, renew all of those things in them that, that need to be brought into their eternal home.
0: Yeah, you, 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 you introduced your, your statement there, Tom, with, the, with an interesting uh, phrase, reality vision which I think relates to what you were talking about, Glenn, with regard to worldview. But I think many of uh, you know, the people I've known over the years and, and the churches I've, I've pastored and, and I've enjoyed fellowshipping with, if you were to ask them what is Christianity, they wouldn't say reality. They would say something like Jesus in my heart. Yeah. Now, Jesus in your heart's great, I'm not against that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that is uh, making Jesus portable so you can take him with you wherever you go like a little friend. So that's really – now, that's a very powerful little friend. But, yeah. but, but you the, know what I'm getting at? That's
2: a form of like domestication, right? Yeah. Im-
0: making Christ manageable. Yeah. But what, what, we, what we're, I think, getting at is that Christ is the very foundation of reality. You could say that Christ is what is ultimately real. He is the logos of God who, you know, you've mentioned this many times, from whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. All things, which would mean what? All things. In in all of creation,
2: all cultures, even though fallen. That's why the
0: gospel it's applicable to all. Right, right. But I, I guess that's the thing we're kind of getting at here. Uh, maybe maybe the, the problem that we, we see today with how the, the church, at least in the West, is going about its work, is it's, it's thinking too small. You know what I'm saying? We, our, our vision is, is too narrow or too focused in on our inner lives or the particular problems we have. Now, all, this, all those things are important. Those are part of all things. So they, we get to those things you know, in ministry, but I think that we, we need to see how those things relate to the big picture, right?
1: Where this brings me is I am think about the degree to which the church has unwittingly adopted ideas out of the society as a whole. Um, and this is where our discussion of death works and culture of death and anti culture and all of that comes in. Um, we don't, I think, in, in a lot of a lot of our evangelical leaders, frankly, are in a situation where they don't have a robust enough view of the transcendence of God, uh, of what all things mean, all of those kinds of things, and they are substituting for it. Uh, ideas and values from the culture, always sort of one
0: step behind the culture, by the way. That's but, right. That's right. But, that's uh, right. but, but you, you know, something is really on its way out when the church adopts it. <laughs>
1: right. Yeah. So, but, you know, but when, when you look at some of the absurdities that exist in our culture right now, um, birthing persons, right? you know, um, the, the whole transgender thing, I mean, it is patently absurd on a whole lot of levels, and nobody would have believed 10, 15 years ago that this would now become orthodoxy that you can get fired over by using the wrong pronoun. Um, hmm. Yet we see, well, that, that, by the way, itself is a logical conclusion based on other assumptions that exist in secular culture. I won't trace that all out. But when, once you make certain assumptions in secular culture, when they become dominant, in, inevitably, their logical results will embed themselves in the culture. That's what's happened. That's where that's where the whole transgender thing comes from um, and a whole host of other things. But the problem is the church has assimilated so much to the culture mm. that it doesn't really understand frequently how You know, they they know that this is wrong, but they don't quite understand how to deal with it Um, because they've adopted things like the culture's definition of love, which is, if you love me, you will affirm me. That's not really a biblical concept of love. Biblically, love is seeking a neighbor's highest good. Affirming them in a lie is not seeking their highest good. But we don't understand these things, or at least too many people in the evangelical world don't understand these things because they have never really thought through a lot of the implications of of transcendence, the lordship of Christ, the integrity of creation as created by God, um, and so on. Instead, we've just been
0: constantly trying to make ourselves look good to the culture. There are a couple of thoughts that come to mind here. I think you're right. I think there are some folks who are simply... Uh, uninformed, naive, um, kind of suffering from wishful thinking, but there's a more disturbing possibility, and that is some folks know exactly what they're doing, and they've already made the transaction in their own minds, in their in their own hearts, and they're not been forthright with the rest of us, and they're still leading churches, still, you know, uh, operating as though they haven't made that shift, but. In a subtle way, are you know moving things in a direction that they find um more, I guess, appealing or what they think might be more relevant. Well, it's interesting. There was a work um several years back by
2: Yale uh theologian Catherine Tanner, who wrote a book called Social Justice and Christian Faith or something along those lines. And one of her skills was to utilize classic Christian orthodoxy, but alter it in new ways so that you could really infuse it with these modernist ethical revisions. Yeah. And so, rather than just being outright the way classic theological liberalism was, of of just saying, okay, we're filling old terms with a with with. I mean, the old liberals were a little
0: more honest. A little more. Yeah.
2: They still you would use the old terms, though yeah. sometimes manipulatively, um, but. But really, this was this is I mean, and this is someone who does know what those teachers think and and I, I mean I mean old theologians think and classic
0: theology. Yeah, she could probably quote Augustine and Aquinas yeah. and tell you exactly what they said and thought. And the
2: thing is, where she writes on orthodoxy, she writes well on orthodoxy. I mean, so you you're sitting here saying, okay, this is, I mean, there's some profound stuff going on there, but and it's in that subtleties. But she says right up front, that's what she's up to. And how many people in the church or even new theology students studying in a seminary of any school, um, they read that book and they say, okay, this, is, this affirms everything I do, but here. Um, and so
0: that kind of subtlety is, I, I think, maybe not. On yeah, the and, minister. and how do we call it out? Yeah. I think we have to be willing to say, that's wrong. This is why. And this person is teaching something that's false. Now, the church fathers never shied away from that. That's right. That's they right. named names. Yeah. <laughs> they went after people. Yeah, you know. And I think uh, there's a kind of I don't know, uh, I guess culture of politeness where we don't want to go in certain directions. And I understand why we don't want to be abusive. Well, it, but I don't know if 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 we're going to be able to to address uh, heresy if we never say. That's heresy. I, I, have
2: a, I have an interesting thing that comes to mind when uh, for both of you, maybe a question to ask is to what extent has the secular liberal conception of tolerance become adopted so much by evangelicals and the Christian church, especially in the West, that it's so afraid to violate that by being seen as intolerant when classically... I don't think Luther was sitting around <laughs> wondering why, how yeah, to do
0: yeah, I don't think he ever worried he hurt someone's feelings.
2: And when you read the, the hymns that were written by the early Protestants in relationship to the, the Catholics, uh, those were not the kind of things that we would, by today's
0: standard, be concerned. Well, yeah, we and we, we can go back to the, to the church fathers. Yep. You know, remember St. Nicholas? You know what? why St. Nicholas was really famous? You can tell him, Glenn. At the
1: Council of Nicaea, he got so upset at, Arius, who denied
2: the deity of Christ, that he went over and belted him. And there's a lot of Calvin children <laughs> named Calvin here. And does anyone remember what Calvin did to the one who didn't uh, didn't affirm the doctrine of the Trinity?
0: <laughs> yeah. So our 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 I'm not we, recommending it. Well, but our fathers in the faith uh, they had a, a, a different set of um, non-negotiables. Now, I think that's the thing. Maybe maybe when we when we talk about culture we should say every culture has some boundaries that are non-negotiable. And we have in contemporary culture, say multicultural sort of uh, etiquette, uh, you could put it that way, or you could say we have some uh, you know, things that um, are really functioning as heresies. So to claim that Jesus is the Christ, the logos of God is heresy to these sort of multicultural folk who have a different meta-narrative. In that meta-narrative, that's going too far, which resembles the situation on the ground in the early church. You know, we've talked about this before.
2: I, I I mean, I, you know, I'm somebody willing to go out on a limb enough to say that we're very much in a lot of the set of circumstances that the early church was, although we're in a situation that has kind of had a culture that was impacted by forms of Christianity but rejected it and now are losing touch with it. Right. Um, but nevertheless, the, the what is filling the vacuum is very much like that. Very much.
0: Yes. Yeah, and this is something that C.S. Lewis was very concerned about. He thought that... Uh, the kind of neo-paganism that he saw emerging was going to be much more difficult to deal with than the original paganism.
1: Yeah. I, there, there, there's a quote that's been sort of rattling around in my head that I just needed to look <laughs> up here. Um, this is from Dorothy Sayers. This is what she had to say about tolerance. In the world, it is called tolerance, but in hell, it is called despair. The sin that believes in nothing, cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing, interferes with nothing, enjoys nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and remains alive because there is nothing for, it for which it will die. Yeah. Yeah. Now, it, it's kind of an extreme statement, but I think that that is a lot of what is going on culturally when we talk about tolerance. Yeah. Yeah. It has to do with not caring enough to take a stand for anything, not caring enough to tell people when they're going off, off the deep end, not caring enough to tell people truth, only wanting to go along to get along and leave it at that. You know, and I think that that concept of tolerance and, frankly, a lot of what Sears describes here is really caring about nothing... I think a lot
0: of that has, in fact, infected the church. Yeah. Well, I think we've gotten to that point where we need to wrap things up. <laughs> I think that that quote, though, from Sayers is a good thing to leave folks with and, you know, give them something to reflect on and meditate on. But anyway, it is kind of a dour note. <laughs> I guess the thing to say, as we conclude, is Christ is Lord and he's alive <laughs> and uh, he has won. And so let's end on that note. Anyways, uh, thank you very much, uh, Trinitas, for sponsoring this uh, episode of the uh, Theology Podcast, And we're glad to be here at uh, at this uh, marvelous facility, Thane Boat Works. And uh, we're glad to be with you folks tonight. Thank you for coming out and uh, spending some time with us. And uh, we've really appreciated uh, being with you. Anyway, anything you guys want to say as we wrap up? I was hoping to take a boat home with me. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> Got some nice boats here. Anyway, you want to sit in your luggage? Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I guess that's enough for now. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.